this morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me once again to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. It's only taken us four weeks to get verse 3. Uh, we'll be speeding up a little bit now, I assure you. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians 1, verses 3 through 8. When God decided to communicate with us, he decided to communicate with us primarily through his written word. This is not simply a book that someone else wrote about God. It's a book that God himself wrote. It is breathed from God. And so God inspired men to write this book and to give it to us as the very word of God. It's just interesting to me that when God chose to speak to us, he did not speak to us and give us a book filled with lists or simply principles or commands. He did not give us a topical Bible. Topical Bibles can be helpful, but that's not what God gave us. It, it, in some ways, would have been nice if the books of the Bible were simply titled Marriage, Children, How to Find a New Job, How to Discern the Will of God, Patience, Grace, Encouragement, Depression, Anxiety, whatever it is, that would have been nice, but God didn't do it that way. For some reason, when God chose to speak to us, he gave us a book of stories. He gave us a book of biographies. It is really from beginning to end a book in which we're walking through the lives of people as they learn to walk with God. We have in their lives our examples. They become our teachers and our mentors. I even think about the Ten Commandments, which is a list of commandments, but the Ten Commandments can only be understood in light of the story that God's people had already been saved. And as the delivered people of God from the Exodus, God stops and says, now as the redeemed people of God, here is the way you are to live. Even the lists can't be understood outside of the story. And we learn from these imperfect people. We learn from their successes. We learn from their failures. We learn from their walk with God. God writes stories. He works through people. This is the way he has chosen to advance his kingdom. The book of Philippians has some incredible verses. It has some of the most famous verses in the New Testament. It has a lot of commands and a lot of encouragements and a lot of good principles, even some real practical help, particularly in chapter 4. But yet the book that we hold in our hands, titled Philippians, is one moment in a long story. The story we looked at the past few weeks. It is 10 years after the church at Philippi began that Paul, after ministering to them throughout the 10 years and then ministering to him, stops and writes this book. A book that cannot be understood outside of the story. And a book that seems to think the story is important because most of chapter 1 is simply a reminder of the story. There's not many commands, there's not many do's and don'ts. But there is a story that is significant for us, particularly a story of friendship. This is really what Paul is talking about at the beginning of Philippians 1. He's recounting the friendship that God has given him with this church, a unique friendship, a special friendship. Sadly, a bit of an abnormal friendship. 
This friendship has developed all kinds of emotions in the Apostle Paul. And so he writes in chapter 1 expressing how he feels about this church because of the friendship that they've developed. Look at it with me in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you feel the emotion of the text? I've said this to you before. We must not only see the words of the text, but the emotion of the text. Do you see the feelings that are stirred up in the Apostle Paul as he's communicating how much he loves them? Do you see the spirit of of thanksgiving as he says in verse 3? I thank my God in every remembrance of you. What it means is this. Paul says, every time I think of you, I thank God for you. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many people in your life you feel that way about, but Paul feels that way. Every time you come to my mind, my immediate response is to say, God, thank you. Thank you for these gospel friends. Not only that, this relationship stirs up joy in him. Look what he says in verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine, you all making my prayer with joy. So I think about you. I immediately thank God. And then I realize that as I'm thinking of you and thanking God for you, I am overcome with joy because of the relationship we have together. It stirs up joy in my heart. It is a joy-giving relationship. It is not a relationship that sucks the life out of you, but yet Paul is saying this is a relationship that brings me incredibly deep-rooted joy. This relationship has stirred up confidence. Look at verse 6. I am sure of this. I'm absolutely confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I know you so well. We're so connected to each other, and I've watched you up until the point that I am able to say a remarkable statement. I'm confident that you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Well, that's an amazing statement. I mean, I don't know many of you well. I haven't been here very long, but I, but I do hope that as I get to know you, I will have the confidence to be able to say of you, I am sure that you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, I'm confident that God who started his work is going to be faithful to finish that work. But Paul said, I know you so well that I'm confident to be able to say God's doing a good work in your heart. And look at the affection it stirs up in verse 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about you. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. You're dear to me. You're in my heart. For you're partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and defense, confirmation of the gospel. And listen to verse 8. For God's my witness, how I yearn for you. That's a word of deepest longing. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, the same way that Jesus feels about you and the way in which he yearns about you is the way I yearn for you. That God has given me a deep-rooted affection for you. And the only way I can explain it is this, is that the same way God feels about you is the way that I feel about you. 
I'm thankful for you. You bring me great joy. I know you well enough to be confident in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and I have a yearning to be with you and to know you and to walk with you. This is anything but a casual friendship. I want you to notice there's no command in this text. Now, as a preacher, and this is part of just understanding how to preach and understand the Bible, you're always looking for the command. Everything revolves around the command. There's no command here. But yet, God has something for us to learn from this text, and it may not be as simple, you need to do this. It's here for a reason, and the reason it's here is to stir up, listen to me, to stir up in our hearts a desire for these kind of friendships. To give us a vision for these kind of friendships. For us to long for gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, spirit-filled relationships with one another. It is supposed to make us no longer content with just casual relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is to give us an idea that there is a greater relationship that we can have one with another. A relationship that bears incredible fruit. It's to show us this, that the way in which the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, not only in you but through you, is through these kind of relationships. Do you know it is impossible for you to see God do all of the work he wants to do in you and the work he wants to do through you without these types of relationships? If you do not have these kinds of people in your life, you will never be the person God wants you to be. You were created for this. You may have been hurt so much in the past that you have kind of calloused your heart or hardened your heart a bit and you're now pushing against these type of intimate and deep relationships. And this happens. We get hurt. And when we get hurt, we pull back. And we don't want these type of relationships. But let me say this. God has created you for this in such a way that it is impossible for you to be what he wants you to be without it. Now, if I, if I had to, to put a name on these type of relationships, I would call them this, gospel partnerships. Now, I hesitate with that phrase because it does sound uh, a little bit corporate in some way, but yet it seems to be the best explanation of what it is, a gospel partnership. And the reason I'm going to call it that is because the key word in verses 3 through 8 is the Greek word koinonia. The root of it is found twice in this text. Look in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, some of your versions may say your fellowship in the gospel. That word koinonia is often translated fellowship. But he says because of your partnership in the gospel. And then again in verse 7, I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. That's the same root word. Koinonia, fellowship. But the reason I believe the English Standard Version has made a good decision in translating it partnership instead of fellowship, because if we're honest, particularly in Baptist life, the word fellowship has lost its depth of meaning. If you were to come to me after service and say, Pastor, I would like to invite you and your wife over to a time of fellowship at our house. What I would assume you mean is a time when we would just casually eat. I would hope there's food there. Uh, and we would talk and we would get to know each other. What you'd mean is, listen, Pastor, there's no agenda. We're not trying to accomplish anything. We don't try to get anything done. We just want to get to know you and your wife and your family. And we'd like to do that to eat together. This is, this is what we would mean by the word fellowship. Matter of fact, if you're, if you're really Baptist, this is a Baptist test here. 
you might remember something that Baptist churches used to have called snacks, Sunday night, after church, koinonia. You know that? Yeah. I mean, can you, can you even get cheesier than that? But they used to have this, snacks. And what we meant is, we were gonna, it's, a, you know, it's a play on words. We're going to have snacks, but we're also going to have koinonia and fellowship. Here's the problem with that. The word koinonia in the New Testament does not mean having snacks and getting together and getting to know one another. Do we need to do that? Absolutely. Is that a fine thing to do? Absolutely. But when the New Testament uses the word koinonia, it means the joining together of people in a like-minded partnership to accomplish the will and the work of God. That's what Paul means when he talks about fellowship, and that's why he calls it a gospel partnership. I think one of the, one of the passages to help me understand this the most is in Luke 5, verses 9 and 10. It's a passage when Jesus is calling the disciples, and he talks about the fact that he goes to these fishermen, and he invites them to come and to follow him. And it talks about these men who had a partnership together in the fishing business. It's not just a Christian word. It's a word that means people who have come together because they want the same things. In Luke 5, they have the same gifting, the talents. They have the same desire. They want to catch fish and make money. So they've partnered together. Really, that idea of joining together for a business is actually a better explanation of fellowship than what we would say, which is just gathering together for snacks and getting to know one another. But there's something significant here. Because we as followers of Christ have been called by the same God, we have been purchased by the same blood, we have been joined into the same body, we are submissive to the same Lord, we're filled with the same spirit, and God is calling us into something greater than just casual fellowship. He has designed you, and he's designed me, for gospel partnership. Now what happens in this text is Paul really explains to us what gospel partnership looks like. And I want to give you this morning three marks of gospel partnership. I encourage you to write these down because these are the kind of relationships that God wants to cultivate at Prince Avenue Baptist Church. These are the kind of relationships he wants you to be going after. Not be satisfied with anything less, but to go after true gospel partnership. The first mark of a gospel partnership is this. They are supernaturally created in Christ. Write that down. Supernaturally created in in Christ. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What is the first day? Well, the first day is Acts 16, when Paul preached the gospel, and the Philippians came to know the Lord, and a church started. From that moment, that was the beginning of the partnership. Now, what that's saying to us is that there could not have been a partnership before that, not only because they didn't know each other, but because at that moment there was a union that was created supernaturally in the gospel of Jesus Christ that made this partnership possible. They have been joined together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul came to town, he preached the gospel, people were saved, they were united into one family, and it was an odd family. Remember there was this wealthy Asian God-fearing woman named Lydia. There was this poor Greek slave girl who had been uh, delivered from a demonic spirit. There was this blue-collar Roman soldier. There was nothing on a human level that would have been brought them together. They would have never shown up at the same functions. 
not only because they didn't have things in common, but they weren't even of the same class. Yet at the end of Acts 16, Paul leaves town and he leaves a church gathered together filled with the most unlikely group of people. And the reason they were gathered is because they've been united in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. He says, for you are all, here's the word again, partakers with me of grace. That we know the same grace. We've been saved by the same grace. We're walking in the same grace. I've received grace and you have received grace. Therefore, we have a fellowship of grace. We have a partnership of grace. What Paul's trying to say is that the moment in which you gave your life to Christ, we entered into the same family and we have been supernaturally united together. When I think about the fact that I have two older brothers, much, much older brothers. Uh, if you lined us all up together, you would wonder how we were related. We just don't look anything alike. And if, unless my parents are hiding something from us, I think we were all from the same mother and father. But we really don't look anything alike. My uh, middle brother has a great head of hair. Whether he's paid for that hair or not, we will not discuss. But he's got a great head of hair. My, I hope they don't listen. My older brother uh, doesn't look anything like me. We just look nothing alike. But we're family. And the reason we're family is because we share the same genes. Now, I do not mean J-E-A-N-S. There is no way either one of my brothers would be able to fit into my genes. <laughs> but we share the same genes. We're biologically connected. There is something deeper than, sense, than, than our common interests or hobbies. We have the same mother and father. Now, let me tell you something. I think what we so often fail to realize is that there is something deeply that connects us. It doesn't matter whether we have the same interests or hobbies or come from the same background or whether you were raised in a middle-class family, a lower-class family, a very wealthy family. The wonderful thing about the Church of Jesus Christ is all of those people are represented here and all of those people are welcome here. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter how you were raised. You are welcome in the Church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Anyone is welcome. Why? Because we were all born spiritually dead and disobedient and doomed. And the only reason we have anything going for us is because we were supernaturally saved by the grace of God. And God has this wonderful desire to exalt his son, Jesus Christ, by demonstrating the power of the gospel, by saving people from all kinds of different backgrounds and putting them in the same family. And this relationship that God wants to begin in us begins by an understanding that we have the same Father, God. We have the same brother, Hebrews 2, Jesus Christ. And we have the same Spirit filling each one of us. This koinonia, this partnership that he says here, is a supernatural spiritual bond only for those who know Jesus Christ. You know what else that means? It means that we have the opportunity to have a relationship deeper than we can have with anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who weren't raised in a Christian family and they got saved and they were the first person in their family to get saved. And when they go home for holidays or different uh, occasions, they love their family, but they just don't fit. They come to church with people they've only known a few weeks and they fit. And all of a sudden, this family becomes more of their family. Why? Because... There's a bond that you have in this family that you may not have with your immediate family, and it is a very real, supernatural, spiritual bond that unites us together. This is, this is why you need a church. 
God wants to unite you with like-minded people who will be supernaturally experiencing this relationship that God has purchased for you through Jesus Christ. Supernaturally united in Christ. That's how it begins. Now, the second mark of gospel partnership is this. It is selflessly concerned with each other. Now, this is a big one. Write that down. Selflessly concerned with each other. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying we're servants of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this, a word that actually means a bond slave. Because of the negative connotations, rightly so, the translators choose not to use the word slave, but that's what it means. Paul is saying we have submitted ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Now, the effect of being submitted to Christ should always be to be concerned for others. This is why the two commands can't be separated, love God and love others, because as I am surrendered to Jesus Christ and he becomes the Lord of my life, now all of a sudden my heart begins to be turned towards other people. If there is, just read 1 John, if there's no love for brothers and sisters in Christ, then you're probably not a brother and sister. I mean, 1 John is very clear, the greatest test, the easiest test of your relationship with Jesus Christ is not only your hunger and thirst for righteousness, but do you love other people? This is why they can't be separated. And you see in this relationship this incredible selfless concern for each other. I mean, remember Paul when he went there supernaturally led by the Holy Spirit to Philippi? He traveled there. He preached the gospel. He was then uh, publicly humiliated. He suffered for the sake of the gospel. He was beaten and thrown in jail. They visited him. They prayed for him, invested in each other. You see Paul's selfless concern in chapter 1, verse 25, where he says, I'm convinced of this, that I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. What's Paul's great concern? Their progress and their joy. I want to increase your progress. I want to increase your joy. Paul's saying, that, that's my desire. And this is right after he says, I don't know whether I'm going to live or I'm going to die. Frankly, I'd rather die because it's better because I can go be with Jesus. But I'm convinced that I'm going to stay. Why? Not for me, but for you. Because I'm concerned with your joy and progress in the faith. Not only was Paul concerned with them, but think about the way that they were concerned with Paul. It says, from the first day until now, you partnered with me. Remember immediately when Lydia was saved and Lydia brought Paul and Timothy into the home and showed them hospitality? Remember right after Paul was beaten, the jailer cleansed his wounds and brought him to his house for a meal? Do you remember the story ends with them back at the house of Lydia? Once again experiencing that kind of hospitality. What's happening here, the Philippian church is saying that we are giving ourselves to you, Paul. We're committed to you. We're committed, committed to your ministry. And so we're sacrificing selflessly ourselves for you. You see, what gospel partnership is, is it's a relationship where you are committed to the progress of the gospel in each other's lives. Where your greatest concern for the other is seeing Jesus Christ formed in that other person. I mean, this is the whole point of the central theme of Philippians and Philippians 2, where Paul says to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So Paul is saying over and over in Philippians, I want you to be united together for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he knows that's impossible unless you are selflessly concerned for each other. I love that little episode in John 13 where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And then right after he washes their feet, he says, now, as I have loved you, go and love others. How are we to love others the way that Christ has loved us? How has he loved us in that selfless, humble, serving manner? And then at the end of that, he says that the reason you should love one another that way is so that all might know that you are my disciples. So, so what Paul is saying, listen, is this, is that if we want to have true gospel friendship, gospel partnership, it must be every one of us individually taking this attitude, I am most concerned about you and your spiritual life to the extent that I will die to self and not do the things that I want to do. I will put all of my interests inside. I will look first to your interests. I exist for your spiritual growth. Can you imagine if you had just a few people in your life like that? Listen, listen, I am, I am most committed to your spiritual growth. The Bible says not only is that good for your walk with Christ, it's good for their walk with Christ. And according to John 13, it is that kind of relationship that exalts Jesus Christ. It is a picture of the gospel because that's what Jesus did for you. He was selflessly concerned for you and calls us into a life of selfless concern for other people. Maybe something as simple as listening more than talking. Serving more than being served working for the spiritual progress of others. It may be as simple, listen, as confronting someone else in their sin because you're more concerned with their spiritual progress than you are with them liking you. Do you hear that? Could it be that what God is calling some of you today is to confront someone else in their sin? Why? Because you love them. How unloving would it be for you to see someone else in sin and fail to call them out? I can't tell you how many times I've had someone come to me and say, Pastor, so-and-so is involved in this sin. We think you need to talk to him. And my response is going to be, why don't you talk to him? I mean, you have a relationship with them. And Matthew 18 is very clear. If you talk to them and that doesn't work and others talk to them and that doesn't work, then we get the church involved. But the bottom line is, could God be calling you to love someone enough to get involved in their lives and call them out on an area that is damaging their spiritual life? It is this death-to-self, humble service of one another for their spiritual growth. The third mark of gospel partnerships is not only this supernatural creation in Christ and the selfless concern for others. The last one is this, being sacrificially committed to the same mission. Sacrificially committed to the same mission. Gospel partnerships work because they're created in Christ. They're committed to each other selflessly, and they're committed to the mission of God. Paul says in verse 7, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So you've been with me as I've sought to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at the end of chapter 1, verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. 
Paul's saying is this, is you've been with me in my suffering for the gospel. Now I'm calling you to suffer for the gospel in the same way. That we're united in a common mission. This is why I've said before the key verse in Philippians is Philippians 1.27. Paul's saying, my goal for you as a church is that you would be striving together side by side for the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest gifts of gospel partnership is our ability to work together to advance the gospel. You know, if you look at Ephesians 4, it gives us this picture of how the church of Jesus Christ should work. And the way it works is this, is that it takes all of us to make up the body of Christ. And you have gifts, and I have gifts, and your gifts are not my gifts, and my gifts are not your gifts, but my gifts are no better than your gifts, and your gifts are no better than my gifts. We need each other's gifts. And what God wants to do is put us in relationships where when we work together, and only when we work together, we can advance the kingdom of God. So you're doing your job, and I'm doing my job, and I'm using my gifts, and you're using your gifts, and you're serving, and I'm serving, and we're all presenting the gospel. As 1 Corinthians say, one person waters and the other person plants, but God is bringing the increase. You know how people get saved? Because you share the gospel with them, and they've probably heard it nine other times before you shared it with them. You just happen to be the next person. And so if you share the gospel and I share the gospel, then God is working in the hearts of people. And the way people get saved is all of us moving in that same direction. And do you realize that one of the beauties of these relationships is God wants to give them to us so that together we can advance the kingdom of God. Now let me ask you this, very practical question. How many of you have relationships where at the, at the very core of the relationship you are working together to see people come to know Christ? I'm convicted by this. When I was just taking a walk yesterday, I was meditating on this text, I was convicted by this. But what are the people in your life that you can identify that are like-minded believers, that are selflessly concerned for you, and you're selflessly concerned for them, and when you're together, one of the things that you really want to see happen is you want to see your relationships lead other people to Jesus Christ. You're working together to see the gospel advance. That's the kind of relationships that God wants you to have. And he wants to give us a vision of it, and he wants to show you that it's possible. Not only is it possible, God created you to have them. But just because you've been united in Christ doesn't mean those relationships naturally happen. We must apply our own effort into engaging in those relationships, putting all the hindrances aside, and recognizing this. That if these relationships are created in Christ Jesus and have a powerful effect on our lives and the lives of others... Everything in hell is going to try to keep you from having these relationships. Your insecurities, your fears, your hurts from the past, your desire to be isolated and to live on your own, every single bit of that is the enemy trying to get in your life and undermine these type of relationships because the enemy knows that there is nothing more powerful than this type of commitment to one another in the body of Christ. One of the things I want to challenge you with this morning is to think about what in your life, it may just be selfishness, you just don't want to engage. It may be fear, I don't know what it is, but what is it in your life that is keeping you from these types of relationships? Do you know that God is, is still writing stories? This book is a book of stories, and he's still writing stories. Do you know that he's, he's writing yours? And your story is going to include a lot of people. Your story will have tons of people in it. 
Some you chose to have in it, some you didn't have, choose to have in it. There'll be a lot of people in your story. My question for you is this, are the people in your story gonna be people who are gospel partners or just simply friends? I wanna plead with you to move beyond a casual friendship, to not settle for anything less than what the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you, to turn your relationship into gospel partnership. Husbands, let me speak to you a minute. Look at me. Husbands, do you know your marriage exists to be a gospel partnership? God has created you and put you in this marriage so it can be a gospel partnership where you are selflessly concerned with your wife's interest above your own and you're working together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Singles, can I tell you something beautiful? Two things. First of all, as you're looking for someone to marry, look for a gospel partner. Look for a gospel partner. And if God chooses to never allow you to be married, know that God has provided you through the ministry of the church with an opportunity to have incredibly deep and meaningful relationships where you are yearning for one another because you've been united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those type of relationships are still available to you. Students, whether in college or whether in high school, can I encourage you to not settle for friendships? Maybe you're sitting next to a friend this morning. Why don't you come at the end of the service, get on your knees and say, God, we don't want this to be a friendship. We want this to be a gospel partnership. Maybe you want to come as husband and wife and say, listen, we, we don't want to settle anymore for just a marriage. We want to be gospel partners. Because God has created you for this and he's designed you for it. And the way it begins is by not waiting on someone else to take the first step. You're just saying, I'm going to start by serving and loving and getting involved. And you know what? You may get hurt. That's the risk of relationships. But my goodness, are they worth it. And even in the hurt, God is conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. Do not settle for anything less. May God, by his grace, raise up hundreds and hundreds of gospel partnerships at Prince Avenue Baptist Church. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.